The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the Psalms, Psalm 37, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 11 this morning. The word of the Lord. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 6 this morning. The word of our God. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. Imagine being a faithful Jew in 25, 26, 27 AD. That was not an easy thing to do. Uh, In addition to dealing with the fact that you would be a sinner, living in a broken and sinful world, you're also living at a time where the people of God are under the thumb of a pagan emperor by the name of Tiberius. And Tiberius even had the audacity to tell people that he was the Lord and the Savior of the world. You had to pay taxes to him. To make matters worse, the Jewish Sanhedrin was rife with corruption. In fact, the office of the high priest was being sold to the highest bidder at this time. It was not an easy time to be a faithful Jew. In spite of this, you continue to gather with the Lord's people on the Sabbath to hear the scriptures read and taught. And sometimes the messianic promises would be so beautiful. They would be so encouraging but they would also seem impossibly far away. 
Was that just a fantasy that we told ourselves so that we could make it through the grind of the day? I mean, perhaps religion really is just the opiate of the masses. Then one day, Jesus, a rabbi from your own town, comes in as a visiting rabbi in a sense because he'd been traveling around some. He takes the scroll of Isaiah and he rolls it open to Isaiah 61 and he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back to the attendant, and he sits down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue are fixed upon him, and he begins to say, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you understand what Jesus is claiming? The longed-for year of the Lord's favor had finally arrived. It had arrived because Jesus was here. He was the anointed. He was the Messiah whom the Old Testament prophets looked forward to. And God has now sent him to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I mean, one thing is certain, if you believe the Old Testament scriptures, and you believe the words of Jesus, your life would never be the same again. And of course, that's true for us in the 21st century as well, not just in the first century. In fact, we live on this side of the empty tomb, where Almighty God has publicly declared that his Son is both Lord and Christ by raising him from the dead. Those beautiful words from Isaiah 61 form the background for the opening beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at those words this morning under three headings. First, Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. Second, Jesus calls us to a radical life of discipleship. And third, Jesus blesses those who depend upon him. Let me give you those again. Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. Jesus calls us to a radical life of discipleship. And Jesus blesses those who depend upon him. We begin with the fact that Jesus Christ is the lawgiver. Look at verse 1 with me. Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, the last thing that we had heard at the very end of chapter 4, you could just look up a verse, the very last thing we've heard from Matthew is this. Great crowds followed Jesus from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And now Jesus goes up a mountain, up the hill country that would have been to the northwest of the Sea of Galilee. Actually, the hills go up rather steeply from there. And he goes up those hills for a very particular reason. 
The gospel, according to Matthew, makes this clear by drawing connections between what God did through Moses in organizing the people of God after the Exodus into a nation and what the Lord is also doing now in the new covenant. As the new covenant is inaugurated and Jesus regathers the people of God around his own person, Matthew intends us to see that connection. But how exactly does that connection work? How do you put Jesus going up the mountain with Moses going up Mount Sinai where he was given the Ten Commandments along with a great deal of the Torah which fleshed out what those commandments meant for the people of God. Isn't Jesus making clear that he is the new Moses figure for the new covenant? What do you think about that? Don't rush to agree. Please be careful if you're taking notes here. What do you think about Jesus going up on the mountain to make clear that he's the new Moses figure for the new covenant? See, regrettably, we can easily be misled at this point by a quirk that just takes place in our own day. It is very common for people to refer to Moses as the lawgiver of Israel. And therefore, we can see Jesus going up the mountain to give the law and say, just like Moses. But I want to remind you that Moses was not the lawgiver. When Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he doesn't give the law, he receives it. Almighty God gives the law to Moses. And so when you bring Mount Sinai and the Sermon on the Mount together in your mind, it is the inner core of disciples who are going to become apostles who are in Moses' place. And Jesus is not in Moses' place. Jesus is in the place of Almighty God. He will open his mouth, And he will declare the very words of God as the lawgiver for the people of God. Moses ascends the mountain to receive the law. Jesus ascends the mountain to give it. The absolute divine authority of Christ's teaching is going to become abundantly clear throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, For example, six times Jesus will correct the oral tradition of the rabbis, the oral law that was considered binding by most Jews, he will correct it simply by saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. There is no appeal to rabbinic tradition, great scholarly erudition. There's no debate. Jesus is simply saying you need to reorganize the way you think and the way you live around the highest possible authority in the entire universe. My word. It's a voice of absolute authority by which Jesus speaks to us. No wonder we are told at the end of the sermon that the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he is teaching them as one who had authority and not like their scribes. Now we need to keep that truth in mind as we are challenged by Christ's words over the coming weeks. We are not reading the collected wisdom of the ages where we can pick through those parts that we think will be most helpful while setting aside or ignoring the other parts that seem like they don't fit in my life in the 21st century. That is not an option that Jesus has left for us. Think back to Mount Sinai. Almighty God comes down on Mount Sinai with a display of glory. The mountain shakes. It is on fire with the glory of the Lord. 
Can you imagine Moses going up and saying, Lord, you know, first, second, fifth commandment, they kind of make good sense to me. I think we'll try those. Not so sure about the other ones. Well, we'll kind of put some of it into practice and we'll come back and revisit it in the future. I mean, that's outrageous. It's more than outrageous. It's blasphemous to say that to God. But do you realize that many, I'm not warning this because there's a few, many churchgoers do exactly that with the Sermon on the Mount. They pick the parts they like. They gloss over the parts that are too hard for them right now. Beloved, may that not be true of this congregation of God's people. For the words that we are about to study together are the words of the incarnate God. And Jesus himself is calling us, as our lawgiver, to a course of radical discipleship. We are explicitly told that when Jesus sat down, his disciples came to him. Uh, This is the very first time that that term disciple is used in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And that makes good sense. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, is very much about discipleship. But it also raises a question for us. Whom exactly is Jesus speaking to? Uh, Think for yourself, right? He's had these vast crowds that have been following him around Galilee. And now he goes up the mountain. How do you picture that in your mind? Are you imagining that Jesus is getting away from the crowds just for an intimate discussion with his inner circle of 12 or maybe a few other disciples that might follow on with him? A number of fine scholars actually approach these words that way. But it doesn't work. When we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we are told this. When Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. It therefore seems best to take those words at face value. When Jesus delivered this crowd, yes, he is talking in particular about discipleship. He's not talking about how to become a disciple. He's giving teaching for what his disciples are supposed to live like, what it means to be his disciple. But he's actually directing that to three groups of people. First, the very core inner uh, circle of disciples, including those who are going to become his apostles. But there's also a wider group of people who have been following him around, who really do honor him as a rabbi, who in a looser sense could be called disciples. But I think there's also large groups of people who have shown up just to hear what he has to say, see what's going on. The crowds. Jesus is speaking for all of their benefit. Um, Think of it this way. That latter group, the crowds who were not yet committed to Jesus, um, they're hearing Jesus pronounce blessings upon those who were in fact his disciples. Jesus is not pronouncing blessings upon them, but they're listening in as Jesus pronounces blessings, God's blessings, upon his disciples. That might be analogous to a non-Christian visitor coming to a church when they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that non-Christian hears the minister stand up and say, on Jesus' behalf, this is my body given for you. Well, the Lord's Supper is not for that non-Christian visitor. The blessings of the Lord's Supper are not for that non-Christian visitor. 
But the message that God loves his people in this way is for that non-Christian visitor. For they would come to know the grace of God and how much he loves those he has brought into his family. I think that might be what's going on here. After all, there's an interesting point here that the Beatitudes are given in the third person. Blessed are those rather than blessed are you. This suggests that Jesus intended them to be heard by the large yet uncommitted crowd, perhaps even as a type of invitation. These blessings will all be yours if you will come and follow me. There is, however, a second challenge regarding the application of the Sermon on the Mount that has appeared in our own day, particularly, honestly, in North America. This is not a problem that is widespread throughout the world. This is a a challenge that has come up because of some developments in North American evangelicalism over the last 120, 130 years. Some have suggested that this beautiful ethic of Jesus that we're going to read throughout the Sermon on the Mount, will only be fulfilled and is therefore only applicable either in a future millennial kingdom, that's on a premillennial scheme, or in the new heavens and the new earth. Have you ever heard that? This This is God's ethic for then and there, the future, whether it's the millennial kingdom or the new heavens and the new earth. So it's interesting for us to read But we don't have to sweat trying to actually live like this. It's actually a fairly common point of view in the North American church right now. And yet if we simply read the sermon, which I strongly encourage you to do, that's actually the first step to understanding the Bible is to listen to it and to read it. If we simply read the sermon, we will quickly realize that such a view is entirely untenable. You'll notice I'm not hedging there. It is entirely untenable. After all, the Sermon on the Mount assumes and at times explicitly states that the people of God will regularly have to deal with persecution and mistreatment. And you can simply look down a a bit on the page to verses 38 and 42 with me and you'll just see how this works. But this is all throughout the sermon. Picking up in verse 38, Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Beloved, if any of you imagines that that's a description of the new heavens and the new earth, Please see me after this morning's sermon. I have really good news for you about your future home with God. It is going to be so much better than that. That is not a description about then and there. This is a description about our life as God's disciples in the here and now. The Sermon on the Mount is God's will for us in this present age as disciples of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the sovereign lawgiver, is calling us to a life of radical discipleship that we are going to seek by his grace to live right now. 
Yet instead of imagining that Jesus is announcing a crushing moral ethic, I'm going to say this throughout this Sermon on the Mount, I've already said it last week, instead of imagining that Jesus is announcing a crushing moral ethic that just makes us feel miserable because we can't measure up, Jesus is actually announcing the year of the Lord's favor. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount begins with God pronouncing his blessings upon his people. That's what Beatitudes are. They are God saying, I am sovereignly choosing to bless you in this way. So please keep that good news in mind as you read the entire sermon. The first four Beatitudes are woven together around one vital and glorious truth. Jesus Christ blesses those who depend upon him. Uh, Since that's what they're all about, let me just say that again. Jesus is telling us that he will bless, that God will bless, those who depend upon him. It is true that Jesus repeatedly tells us to count the cost of following him. There is a cost in this world. Yet he is also very clear that the blessings that we receive as, as his disciples so outstrip the cost that, as Paul will later say, that cost isn't even worth mentioning in light of the eternal weight of glory that God is working for those who love him. The first four Beatitudes all describe Christ's disciples in terms of acknowledging our dependence upon him. But actually it's helpful if we'll see that there's a natural sequence here or a logical sequence here between the four Beatitudes. They are not saying the same thing four times. They are four distinct aspects of the diamond that fit together. We begin in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I regret because this is our first sermon in the sermon on uh, first sermon that we're doing in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. I have to bring in a bit of background information because I don't want any of you to be confused at this point. Uh, it has become common in both scholarly and popular circles to change this word "blessed" to "happy." Sure, many of you have encountered that, but I find that to be a very unhappy development. I want you to stick with the word "blessed." Now, that's not because I'm against happiness. It's not because Jesus is against happiness. The problem with the word happy isn't actually happiness versus blessedness. is that it gives the wrong impression about how the whole thing works. It is very easy if you start translating this uh, happy instead of blessed that you can think that Jesus is giving wisdom for life, good advice. And if you put this good advice into practice, you will be happy either as the natural result of you following this good advice, or uh, in some way that that um, practice that you have of pursuing these things that God is blessing is the cause of your happiness. And beloved, that is not what Jesus is saying at all. What Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes is, these traits, these character traits, are traits of all of God's disciples. Every single one without exception are marked out by these things. And God is pronouncing his sovereign blessing upon you. It is about God's gracious gift that he freely gives to you. That's why the emphasis is on blessed. It's thrown up right up front in the sentence. If we were writing, we'd put that at the end. Right? Those who do this are blessed. God is saying, no, the blessing comes up front. I want you to see that's 
what I'm pushing for. Jesus Christ is not giving good advice in this passage, good advice that will make us happy if we are diligent enough in applying it. Jesus is sovereignly declaring God's blessing on us entirely as his free gift. Jesus Christ blesses those who depend upon him. The very first sign of our dependence is that we're poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a little tricky for us in wealthy North America. Uh, The word that Jesus uses for poor does not mean they couldn't afford an iPhone. right? It it means they were dependent on other people to survive. right? They, They couldn't make it on their own. It wasn't like their life would just be a little bit more comfortable. They couldn't make it on their own. They were destitute. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that I am not self-sufficient before God, that I am entirely dependent upon his grace. As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, to be spiritually poor is equivalent to being spiritually destitute, without resource, without what one needs in the spiritual realm. Those who are poor in spirit must have their spiritual needs provided by another. What does that look like? Well, a few weeks ago in the evening worship service, we looked at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. That's a beautiful illustration of this. Uh, You know how the story goes. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, another a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Beloved, that's a vivid picture of what it means to be poor in spirit. The tax collector cast himself entirely upon God's mercy. He had nothing else to plead. And God caught him. Jesus, after all, does declare, I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. See, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I grant that poverty of spirit is the objective, natural condition for every single one of us in the fallen world, right? We really are in this state. We are in a state where if God doesn't catch us and uphold us entirely by his grace, we are lost. We are spiritually destitute. But Jesus isn't saying, therefore, God is pronouncing this blessing on everybody. He's saying God is pronouncing this blessing on those who confess that they are spiritually destitute, like the tax collector, who says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This leads naturally to the fact that when a person begins to acknowledge that he or she is poor in spirit, that acknowledgement produces the mourning of which verse 4 speaks. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, it's true, of course, that you've been mourning in this world from the pretty much the day you were born. Things go bad in a fallen world. 
Right? Unbelievers, in fact, mourn. But what they're mourning over is their circumstances, not getting their desires satisfied in one way or another. Of course, sometimes it might be for good things. You know, that might be mourning over hardships that take place to loved ones and so on. But the mourning that Jesus is talking about here is a mourning over our own sin, our own rebellion against God. It is crying out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that only comes about when God causes your eyes to be open when he gives you a new heart by causing you to be born again, and you, in fact, are the poor in spirit who cast yourself entirely upon God's grace in Jesus Christ. Maybe significant, but the verb mourning has a continuous aspect in Greek. See, Jesus is not saying, blessed are those who once mourned but now have moved past it by God's grace. He is not saying that. He is saying, blessings are those who are mourning over their sin, over their brokenness, over the sin of their church and the communities as well, in this fallen world. Intriguingly, the first and the eighth Beatitudes both promise the same blessing, and they both promise it in the present tense. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Beloved, you have the kingdom of heaven now as a Christian. The other six Beatitudes that are between those two bookends are all in the future tense. They all say, shall, will. It deals with things that are still to come. Now, it's important to see that Jesus has already inaugurated his kingdom. And so we experience those blessings and comforts in part. Right? We get to experience them in part in this present age, but not fully until the age to come. Jesus is promising that for his disciples, you do not have your best life now. Your best life is yet to come in the future. Because Jesus is bringing God's kingdom into this present age, those who mourn like this will, in fact, receive some comfort in the present. Yet that full experience of that comfort is still in the future for you. There is still plenty of suffering and sin and heartbreak over your own standing before God for this world to be filled with tears. Yes, thankfully, one day, the lamb in the midst of the throne will be our shepherd, and he will guide us to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. But, beloved, you do not yet live in Revelation chapter 7. Right? That's then. Jesus is promising that then. As we heard in the assurance of pardon this morning, he has gone to prepare a room for you in his father's house. He is promising you that. But it is not your current experience. In this world, we still have plenty of reasons (coughs) to continue to weep. Jeffrey Gibbs once again puts it well. The morning of which Jesus speaks is something that will continue to characterize the lives of his disciples to a greater or lesser extent until the final day of comfort dawns at the consummation of the age. Thankfully, that final day will dawn. It is absolutely certain for all the people of God, but it is not yet. So blessed are those who mourn, for they shall 
be comforted. Our Lord continues, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I'm going to go out on a limb this morning. In honesty, it's a pretty fat limb. I'm not really at that great a risk. How many of you have used the word meek in the past three or four weeks apart from reading this passage? My guess is very few. In all likelihood, none of us. And we're Christians. This isn't people out in the world. We're people who follow Jesus. It would be okay if we weren't using the word meek if we were using other terms to describe the same concept. But my concern as your pastor is we're actually not thinking that much about the concept of meekness either because it is so countercultural. You are bombarded with message every day of your life that are saying things like, you do you, right? Do it your way. Follow your own passions. To your own self be true. And an old one, you deserve a break today. But beloved, meekness is about bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and saying, not my will, but your will be done. It is radically countercultural. It is not the way that we naturally think And yet it is something God does in our lives by his grace. But something we ought to think about because we need to pursue it. Because Jesus is bringing God's kingdom into this present age, and because he is at work in our lives, he does open our hearts so that we bow the knee to Jesus Christ. But here's the risk that we face. Instead of pursuing the Lord's agenda it is very easy for us to slip into pursuing our agendas in a Christianized way. You understand what I'm saying there? It's not like we don't want to follow God. But we're so immersed in this culture of doing things your way that it's easy for us to slide into, I have my agenda, and I want to find out how God fits into my plans. And what Jesus is calling us to do is to see how I fit into God's plans. Not my will, but thy will be done. That is the very heart of biblical meekness. Here's the kicker. Those who aggressively seek to gain the whole world on their own terms end up losing their own souls. But the meek will inherit the earth. See, what your culture is telling you is a lie. It ends in destruction. What Jesus is telling you is the truth. You bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You entrust yourself entirely to him. And he will bless you beyond the world's imagination. There is a natural sequence which moves from acknowledging our own spiritual poverty to mourning over our own sins to bowing the knee so that we sincerely call Jesus our Savior and our Lord. And when we do that, we increasingly recognize how much further we still have to go. I'm sure that was an experience of many who have been Christians for decades, is, you know, four or five decades ago, you thought you were getting really close to the top of the mountain. You were going to be a really mature Christian. And now, four decades later, God has been maturing you and sanctifying you and making you more and more of a woman or a man of God. And you realize that gap between you and Jesus just seems bigger and bigger. So it's a natural thing when we come to this place that we're going to hunger and thirst 
for a righteousness that we do not yet fully have. Uh, Let me say here that um, the righteousness that Matthew is speaking of, he's consistent about this in his gospel, is not the righteousness that's a gift from God that's imputed to us. When Matthew talks about righteousness, he's talking about our right conduct before God. He's talking about us doing what God has called us to do, right? That's what's in view. So what Jesus is saying here is those who hunger and thirst for their own sanctification, right, that increasingly our lives would be lived to the glory of God, our hearts and our emotions would be transformed and aligned with his will, that God himself will cause that to take place. Through the Holy Spirit, you will come to know God's will, and by his grace, you will be sanctified. You will be made useful for God's kingdom in this life, and in the age to come, you will be glorified. The complete dependence upon the grace of God that we have for justification continues throughout our Christian life. It's not as though you get into the kingdom of God by God's grace, and now it's a cooperative deal where it's, you know, Jesus helps you out a bit, but it's really up to you. Sanctification is a work of God's free grace. Those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness will be satisfied. Well, as we pull this all together, I want you to see that the astonishing thing is that instead of this dependence that we need to have upon God leaving us vulnerable and poor, it marks out those people whom God will bless beyond our wildest imaginations. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. As I mentioned, that word blessed has been fronted. It's been put to the front of the sentence for emphasis. But that's how it works in Greek. It's not just here in your English translation. Jesus Christ has come to announce the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus speaks with absolute divine authority. And he has come to declare God's blessing upon his people. The blessings our Lord declares simply stagger the imagination. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be comforted. For they shall inherit the earth. And for they shall be satisfied. Indeed, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, encourage one another with these words. Amen.